Turn on your Bibles to Matthew 17. So we're looking at an um, extraordinary event this morning in Matthew 17, 1 to 23. And I want to set it up this way, which is to say that the world offers you an alternative vision to what we're about to read that's close in one sense, but in another sense is eternally far away from the truth. And what the world tells us is that, 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 that true happiness... True satisfaction, true joy, true purpose is found in finding yourself. Is in becoming fully self-actualized to the point where you really know yourself and have forgiven yourself and have given yourself permission to just do you, right? And your truth is the only truth that matters. And as long as you follow your truth and follow your heart, then you will truly be happy, right? And the, when people are unhappy, the diagnosis always comes down to you just need more to give yourself permission to be more you. And the greatest crime any of us can commit is to say to anybody, you are messed up or you are wrong or you, the you you're trying to be is not a good you to be, right? We, to tell someone to pursue anything other than themselves is the worst philosophical moral crime we can commit. What we're going to see this morning is that the place you actually start to find out who you actually are is not with you, it's with Jesus. So it's very close. It's like it gets you like halfway there and then stops short. And that stopping short leads to death, not to life. Okay? So I want to present you with a different vision of you that doesn't start with you, it starts with him. Okay, so let's do that. Matthew chapter 17, we'll start with the first eight verses. It says, And after six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Uh, Peter, Lord, it's good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. All right, so let's, that's a lot. I mean, okay, it's, it's, a, it's not a lot of words. It's a short little paragraph, but it's a lot. Okay, first of all, let me just say, this happened. Okay, this is not them having a vision that's symbolic of something. This is a thing that happened that they saw. It's the reason Peter, James, and John are there. They're there to witness this thing. They saw it with their own eyes, reported it to Matthew, who wrote it down. Okay? So don't be confused. This is extraordinary. 
I would say this is the most extraordinary thing that happens in the life of Jesus next to the resurrection itself. This is the hinge of the entire book of Matthew, is this event. This is incredible. So try to just get your head around the fact that this actually happened, okay? So let me just kind of recap the details, because it's a lot. Six days after Peter confesses Jesus as Messiah, remember that last week? Peter has this revelation that sort of opens the, he's the spearhead of realizing for sure, for true, I believe Jesus is the Messiah, for the rest of the disciples, okay? Six days after this moment, Jesus takes those three guys up onto a mountain. He doesn't tell them why. He said, we're just going up. We're going to hang out. We're going to do this thing. They go up there. They get to the top of the mountain, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Jesus starts glowing, all right? Now, at this point, if it were me, I hope I would just get quiet. Peter, not so much, but maybe... Maybe we can learn from Peter. Jesus starts glowing and glowing and glowing. He glows so bright that his clothes turn white. Okay, so, so the, the, whatever this glory glow is, it's coming from inside of Jesus. Okay, that's an important detail. We'll get to that in a minute. He is glowing from the inside. And it's so bright, it's like, what? And then it gets weirder. All of a sudden, Elijah and Moses, who were long dead, appear in the flesh, and they start having a chat with Jesus. I don't, it doesn't say what they chatted about. Probably they weren't close enough to hear it. I mean, I wouldn't have been. I'd have been slowly backing away. Peter, in all of his great wisdom, starts trying to, he misunderstands. He doesn't understand what's going on. So his instinct is to say, Jesus, it's great we're here to help with, with this situation. I'll make some tents for you guys to sit in and hang out a while because obviously this, we're going to hang out. This is, this is, we're, this is an important, he, at least he recognizes this is important, right? And in the middle of him saying this, if you read it, it's, the way this reads to me is, as he's saying this out of his mouth, this bright cloud appears and the father just sort of cuts him off and says, as though he's not even talking. And says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. He repeats what he said to Jesus from the cloud at his baptism. Peter wisely shuts up. Decides not to help. <laughs> and they fall on their faces in fear, as we all would. Jesus comes over and says, hey, it's okay. And the whole thing's over. It's amazing. So, what does this mean? Okay, so let's be honest. When you first encounter this story in the Bible, you're as lost as Peter was. Okay, if you've never heard this taught on or explained, ever thought about it, and you just came across this story and it, as though you were experiencing it for the first time, you'd be as confused, like, what in the world is happening? What is this? The primary purpose of this seems to be to reveal Jesus' divine sonship to the disciples in the clearest, most definitive way possible. It is not coincidence that Jesus did this after Peter goes, yeah, I believe you're the Messiah. It's not coincidence. Jesus is saying, yes, for sure, he is confirming to these three guys and through them to the rest of the disciples and then to us. He's confirming, yeah, I'm the guy. 
All the claims that I've made about being the Messiah are true. All the, the miracles that I've done to confirm that are also true. And here I am showing you. It's like he's peeled back just a corner of the veil over his glory to let them see who he really is. In a way that's completely undeniable. Look at 2 Peter 1, 16-18. This is Peter, the guy who, you know, speaks first, <clears throat> thinks later. This is Peter years later. Here's what he says, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly designed myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, quote, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. That's, this is what he's talking about. He's saying, that's how I know he's the man. And it's how you know he's the man. It's because we saw it and we heard it ourselves. This was obviously a major touchstone for the disciples. As to the surety of the divinity of Jesus and his claim to be the Messiah. Okay, And it should be for us today. Then we have the idea, the fact that the, Moses and Elijah were present. This is to show, I think, at the very least, that Jesus is greater than Moses and Elijah. If you remember, in this culture at this time, there were no two greater heroes to the Jewish people. Moses and Elijah were it. Okay, there, no one was more respected, more revered as prophets who did amazing, powerful miracles. They were the, the they were it. They were the the bedrock of that hope right that Moses and Elijah had established that God was real and he was powerful and they were following the right God and here this these three Jewish men are watching as Jesus is greater than Moses and Elijah and he's talking to them it would have been apart from the glowing Jesus it would have been incredibly impactful because they wouldn't have up until that moment been able to imagine anyone being greater than Moses and Elijah. It was beyond their ability to imagine. So there's an allusion here to Moses that I think is pretty obvious. But we have to be careful when we branch off, because I'm going to branch off a little bit here out of Matthew, that we don't start talking about this as though it's just a symbolic vision. It's a thing that really happened. Okay, But Jesus is doing this. And he's doing it for a reason. He's making a point, a couple of very prophetic points, okay? The first is a reference to Moses. Exodus 34, 29 to 35, you may have thought of this already, but it says, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, that's the law, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know <laughs> that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone. And they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron, and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him. And Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. When Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. This is extraordinary. 
Moses would talk with God, and he was coming face to face with some measure of the glory of God, and it would, it would so like physically change him that when he came out from being with God, his face would shine, people would freak out, he'd put a veil over his face. And eventually that glory faded. Yet right here we see that Jesus is the true and better Moses, right? He is the fulfillment of what Moses started, but now Jesus isn't a reflection of the glory of God that fades and he must put a veil over. Jesus is himself the glory of God radiating from out of himself. It's not just him picking up something of the Father and saying, look how great the Father is. Jesus is himself divine. He shares the same essence as the Father. So Jesus is the one glowing, not just reflecting. It's incredible. Matthew, or excuse me, Hebrews says in chapter 1, verse 3, that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. I think the author of Hebrews is referencing this moment. He is the radiance, he is the radiance of the glory of God. This is the same light of glory that blinded Paul on the road to Damascus. He says blinding light hit him. He fell off his horse and was blinded. And out of the blinding light, he hears the voice of Jesus saying, why do you kick against the goad, Paul? the same glory. We sing these songs, I want to see you, right? I don't know. I'm hesitant. I don't want to be blind, right? I don't know. I'm not saying you shouldn't ask. Just saying, know what you're asking for. But wait, there's more. You're like, I thought you were going to talk about me this morning. Where's the me part, right? We're getting to that, all right? I told you, we start with Jesus. There's this amazing scripture in Matthew 13, which we covered weeks ago, that when you read it, you probably just went right past it and didn't think it was significant, but it will be significant to you now. Here's what it says. Matthew 13, 41 to 43, says, The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. So when Matthew describes Jesus' transfiguration, what does he, how does he describe it? He says, Jesus' face shone like the sun. And say, okay, well, that's a small thread of connection. So let me give you some more. Paul sets it in stone later. He says in 2 Corinthians 3, 12 to 18, since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is spirit, or is the spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, 
beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Hello. So you look at Jesus being transfigured. And your trans, English translators use the word transfigured because they're trying to get across this idea that his essence hasn't changed. He's just his form, his, his, his physical form, his appearance has changed, right? He's, he was always divine. He didn't become divine in this moment. That's why they're trying to find an English word that kind of makes sense of that, okay? But you and I are not being transfigured. We are being transformed into that thing. To be like him, not, like, not just like the Jesus who walked around and was crucified and, and wasn't glowing. Paul is saying you and I are being transformed into glowing Jesus. Transfigured Jesus. Jesus said it himself, the righteous will shine like the sun. So the law of Moses has been completed, fulfilled in Christ. The veil no longer stands between us and the glory of God. That is unfathomable. The blinding, holy glory of God. The veil has been taken away. We don't have to settle for the afterglow of Moses anymore. There is no mediator between us and the glory of God if you're in Christ. So just like Peter, James, and John, we can behold the risen Christ with unveiled faces. That's why they can stand there and look at Jesus chatting with Moses and Elijah and not die. Is that something was different? It's a different covenant. Not only that, but we ourselves are being transformed into the likeness of Christ. We are not Christ, but we are being remade into his likeness. This is what you are. Feeling down on yourself? Kind of small and weak and frail? confused, not sure which way is up in life, seems like everybody else is more self-actualized than you, everyone else seems to be happy and fulfilled, they're not by the way, most of the time, not at least as much as you think they are, that's not who you really are, so there's Peter in the middle of all this making a Another fool of himself. While Jesus is showing him what he's going to become. There is nothing ordinary about you. See, Jesus doesn't define discipleship as self-improvement. We often get into this mindset like, I've become a Christian and now I need to get involved in being discipled and that's about improving myself. And it's not. We import these self-actualization kind of things into the idea of sanctification. That is not the goal. God's goal is not to improve you. God's goal is to transform you into something else, to be like him. There is no other goal worthy of dying for. Why would he die to have a better version of you when he can make you like himself to radiate his glory eternally he isn't interested in simply improving you he did not die for your self-actualization jesus wants to transform you into his likeness 
That's an impossible goal, by the way. Whenever I get up to preach or do any kind of ministry, pray for anybody, do any kind of counseling, my prayer is not, God, help me improve everyone. Help me bring more happiness into their life. My prayer is, God, I need you to use me to bring transformation. Eternal transformation, not later, but right now. Whether it's I'm praying for you or talking to you or preaching to you, the goal is not to improve your life. The goal is to make you like him. And that is a goal that I cannot accomplish, right? It puts me in a position of humility and a dependence on the Holy Spirit because if the Holy Spirit, even right now, doesn't impress upon you that this is actually true, then it's for nothing. Whether you feel encouraged or not, if he does not impress this upon you and change you right now, then it's pointless and, we, and I, I've failed. And guess what? God has done that so many times when I have done the worst job imaginable giving counsel to somebody. Just, I don't even, like, just asking questions like, I don't even know what to tell you. And they're like, oh, this was so, my life has changed. And I never told them anything. And they're like, you're such a great counselor. I'm like, really not. I didn't even tell you anything. I just sat here. Right? This is, this is what parenting is like. It's what all of it is like. It's about transformation, not improvement. And it's a goal you can't accomplish for yourself. It has to be Jesus doing something just as miraculous as his transfiguration in your life. We're talking that level miracle. We're talking resurrection level miracle in your life. So there's always this fear when you start talking about this that, that, that people are going to start thinking that they're gods or that they're a bigger deal than they are. First of all, I think that's not possible as long as you realize that you're, anything great about you comes from Jesus. But C.S. Lewis has this wonderful quote. I've used it many times. Unapologet unapologetically, I use it again this morning because I think he gets this right. He puts it all together for me in a way that I think it's just about perfect. He says, it may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else, a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long. We are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It's in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Never. See, this doesn't just change how we see ourselves it dramatically changes how we see each other. 
It means you take each other very seriously. You take your offenses with each other very seriously. You take the eternal destination of other people very seriously because you want them to not become a horror that you would only see in a nightmare. Instead, you want to become something like you read about here with Jesus. You want them to radiate the glory of Christ eternally. They want to be something that's so beautiful and so radiant. If you saw them right now, you would be tempted to worship them. That's, we're all heading to one place or the other. That changes how we pray for each other. It changes how we relate to each other. It changes how we see each other in the body of Christ. It changes how you see your lost neighbor. It changes how you see your boss at work. It changes everything when you begin to see them the way Christ sees them. It's not your glory. It's the glory of Christ in you. So, I just want to encourage you this morning to lay hold of that. To mull it over. God, how do, do I see myself this way? Do I see myself through your vision for me? Do I see myself through my own weakness? And do I see my neighbor through my pride and my judgmentalism or my fear or whatever it is? Or do I see them as eternally destined for some transformation one way or the other? I think it radically changes how we do everything. Why don't we stand up together? I want to pray for you. God, I pray for anyone here, first of all, that has been um, just decimated by their own weakness broken by their own failure. God, anyone that is more aware of their weakness than they are of you. God, I pray that you would give them a vision for what you can do in their life, the kind of transformation that you can do. God, that as they behold the glory of Christ, that you would begin to transform them. God, we come against the lies of the enemy that would say that this is not true. And God, I pray for our neighbors, our friends. God, I pray for transformation. God, we're not selling some kind of personal improvement strategy to improve your life or your standard of living. God, we're preaching something else. We're preaching transformation. The kind of transformation that only you can do. So Lord, I pray that when we preach Christ, that we would preach this Christ. The divine and holy, glorious Christ. God, that we would preach him as holy and Lord and King over all. And we would preach him as one who wants to transform all of us to be like him. God, we pray for our lost neighbors and friends and family, God, that you would do this in them. God, that you would use us in some miraculous way. However weak and faulty we are, God, that you would use us as agents of that transformation. 
What an amazing privilege that is. Lord, you empower your people with your power, your spirit, to do that in the world. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, God bless you this week. Have a good one. We'll see you next time.